announcement that I know of tonight is that on this Saturday we are definitely having our picnic and it looks like it's going to be just picture perfect weather. The low uh, I think the low I saw this morning is predicted is about 61. So by noon, it's with the sun out, it's going to get up into the mid-70s, and the high is only supposed to be about 79 or 80. So it ought to be really good and about a 20% chance of rain. So that would be just on the other side of Patterson. Where th- that's where the 20% will be. <laughs> so And it looks like everything's coming together logistically in terms of getting you know, all the things that we need out there. So uh, it's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a good picnic, lots of games and fun and sitting around talking and getting to know people. So if you um, uh, can make it out there, uh, do so. I think it would be, be a good time. How should a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, and we can be uh, make this time spiritually profitable for our, our spiritual growth. So after a few moments of silent prayer... Uh, if you need to confess sin, you can do so, and then we will. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's just so wonderful that we can come together to just be refreshed by focusing upon Your Word, getting our eyes away from the chaos of the world and all the things that are going on. Uh, both locally as well as uh, nationally, putting our focus upon that which is eternal, focusing on our mission individually to grow to spiritual maturity and be a witness to those around us, a witness for the truth of your word, a witness to the gospel, both verbally and by our lives. And Father, we pray that we might not let let the cares of this world uh, distract us but that we may keep our focus. Ultimately, it's all about our relationship with you and walking with you. Now, fathers, we study in Judges today. Help us to have some other and understand some other insights that we'll see in relation to cultural collapse as well as your magnificent grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Judges chapter 4, and we'll probably not get much further than about the first uh, nine or so verses uh, this evening, uh, but we should be able to finish this up next time. So I have called the lesson, The Bee and the Lightning, because Devorah, which is the Hebrew pronunciation for Deborah, means bee, like a honeybee or a bumblebee, and Barak means lightning. So the bee and the lightning, the lightning will strike and the bee will sting, something like that. So we're looking at Judges again in our breakdown that you should be pretty well able to recite by heart by now instead of tuning it out each week, pay attention, that what we have is the introduction which shows us the cycles of disobedience 
and sets the stage for what we're going to see in this history of Israel for a period that's approximately 350 years. And then the main part of the book is the uh, section of the leadership dealing with the how we see the leaders become increasingly paganized. They look more and more like the Canaanites around them, starting with Othniel and then going down to Samson. But there's this gradual progression and decline in the, in the leadership. And then in these two appendices, you have a picture of how the priesthood is paganized, and we we get a sample of that here. And it may be that this paganization of the priesthood begins to take place uh, during this particular time. We just don't have anything we can um, set the date on at that. And then the paganization of the people. And that's what happens in any culture. You see the leadership is really a reflection of the culture out of which they come. So the leaders come out of the mass of people. So often we just get the leaders we deserve. And in God's grace, there have been many times when we don't get the leaders we deserve, and we've had some really great leaders. And other times we get leaders because God is putting them there in order to bring discipline or judgment on the nation to just intensify the reality of of what's going on in the decline of our nation. So this is the structure of the book. We see this constant cycle of disobedience to God. They disobey God and they depart from their devotion to God to the devotion to the Mosaic law, and that departure is often referred to as apostasy, but it is that disobedience uh, and departure from devotion to Yahweh, and then Yahweh, according to the Torah, according to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 29, he brings divine discipline into the life of the nation, and then they cry out. In a few places, they, it says they repent. In some verses outside of Judges, it says that uh, they repented, but the author never uses that term except a couple of places. So they're, they're, it's really more that they're like a kid who gets caught and spanked, and he cries out in agony, and he really doesn't want to get punished, but he really hasn't reached a point where he realizes he needs to uh, straighten things up and do what his parents want him to do. So God, in his grace, delivers them. It is always an act of grace. And the more I go through this, even though we look at all the disobedience and we look at all the dynamics the thing that comes across is God always sends a someone to deliver them. And so that's that's the cycle. And we've seen that this is just a downward slide from Othniel to Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. That's the that's the line. So we need to get a few things in our minds in regard to the the geography and the layout here. Uh, what we have, I have three red circles up here on the map that we can all see so clearly because we have such bright projectors now. This oblong circle, this long oval, is 
showing the area of the Valley of Megiddo. This is the city of Megiddo. It's on the crossroads of this main trunk line that goes up to, all the way to Damascus, major trade route, and it is on the junction between another, with another route that is coming from the hill country and ultimately from across the Jordan, and then it connects with the way of the sea over here on the, on the west and goes up, up to the north. Or if you were coming from the east, you'd come to Megiddo, and then if you wanted to go down south to either Joppa or on further down to Egypt, you would go that way. So these are strategic locations. This circle is out of place. It should be just a little bit higher. I think I inadvertently moved the map, uh, and the circle stayed in the same place. So this is Hatzor, which is located again, on a major trade route, and so it has, it's situated to have strategic control of the upper Galilee. And then the circle at the bottom is to show the location of where uh, Deborah will be sitting under the, under the palm tree, uh, and that is located down in uh, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, do those names mean anything to you? They should because that's the area of operations. Samuel is from Ramah, and just not too far from there is uh, Gibeah of Saul, and all of those places are located right there. So this is really her area of operation but the fight, the battle that comes up is going to be up in this area here. And Barak is from up along the uh, area just to the uh, west of, of Galilee. So as we looked at this, going through this structure, just to see how there's a parallel, in the first cycle with Othniel as judge, there's the, the description of the disobedience and departure from devotion to Yahweh in Judges 3.7, one verse. That's followed by the description of the discipline of the Lord when Eglon, the king of Moab, or excuse me, when Cushan um, uh, Rishathaim is coming in from the from Mesopotamian area. And so you have two verses to describe that. And then there are two verses in verses 10 and 11 that describe God's deliverance. When you go to the second cycle with Ehud as judge, and he's dealing with the, uh, the incursion of the Moabites and Ammonites and Amalekites under Eglon the king, again we have one verse to describe the disobedience and departure of Israel and then two verses again to describe the discipline of the Lord. But now there are 16 verses. See, in the first cycle, there were two verses. In the second cycle, there are 16 verses to describe the deliverance of the Lord. And then when we get to the third cycle, again, we see one verse to describe the disobedience and departure of Israel from uh, devotion to Yahweh. And then there's discipline described in two verses. And now what do we see? 21 verses that describe the deliverance. See, there's a reason that's structured this way, and that is to build more and more of an emphasis on what God is doing to deliver them. 
In other words, that reinforces the message of God's divine, uh, uh, divine grace. And so we begin this third cycle, as we did last time, looking at the first two verses. And the first verse tells us about what Israel did as they departed from devotion to uh, obedience to Yahweh. When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then verse 2 begins the, is the first of the two verses dealing with the divine discipline. So the Lord sold them. The language is like selling someone into slavery. And that's exactly what happens when we give ourselves over to the sin nature, let the sin nature control, we come under the bondage of the sin nature. This is exactly what Paul talks about uh, throughout Romans chapter 6, that we are now freed from the control of the sin nature, and but we are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and not go back to acting as if we are still a slave to sin because, as Paul says, we are slaves to the one we obey. And when we obey our sin nature, we become slaves again of the sin nature until we confess sin. So this is that picture that they've given into their sin nature again and they've gone back into divine discipline. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Yavin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harsheth Hagoyim. Now, I looked at this last time from the perspective of the uh, potential conflict here with what is said in Joshua about uh, Yavin, the king of, of Canaan, who was in Hazor. Uh, also, I pointed out that, that there's a parallel in judge, the way Judges 4.1 is written that is parallel to the beginning of the uh, Ehud cycle. Uh, but it should, the, the order is reversed in the English, but the order in the, in the Hebrew emphasizes what Israel is doing. They again did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And we looked at Hatzor saw that in Joshua chapter 11, it was clearly stated that uh, Joshua destroyed Hatzor. And the king of Hatzor was Yavin, the king of Hatzor. And so there are those liberals who always come to the text with skepticism because their presupposition is that God does not communicate to people. God cannot communicate to us, and if he did, we couldn't understand it. Because ever since the end of the 18th century, when you had a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant trying to solve the problem of how we know truth, he was faced with the fact that both empiricism and rationalism had been shown to be uh, logically incapable of solving the, and answering the ultimate questions of life. And so his solution to resolve the problem of skepticism that was introduced by David Hume was to just say, well, we can't really know things in themselves. We can only know things as we perceive them. Now, what that means, to make it very simple, is that if there's nothing outside of my head that I can know, then the only way I can know God is if I turn which way? Inside. I have to turn to my emotions. 
I have to turn to some sort of inner feeling. It's a rational form of mysticism rather than an irrational form of mysticism. And this sets the stage for what happens has happened the last 200 years. If you can grasp what happens with Immanuel Kant, and that's what we've been studying, well, really we're going to study it this coming Monday night in the church history course, is tracing how that works its way through the thought systems that are developed in, in Germany primarily, but they come to dominate Europe, and then it's brought here to the United States, and it's all known by the, by the basic uh, name of 19th century Protestant liberalism. And one of the great figures in our American history was a theologian and apologist from Princeton Seminary by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who just wrote tirelessly against the liberals, and they couldn't refute him because he would turn their logic against them. And and they wanted to argue that, well, there's different forms of Christianity. This is the modern form of Christianity. And he said, no, there are, there are two different religions here. One is historical, biblical Christianity, which we know from the Bible. And the other is Protestant liberalism, which is grounded in sinful man's interpretations of his emotions. And that's a pretty clear statement of what liberal theology is. It is a, a reaction to the Bible, and it is because there's nothing in... Philosophy hasn't given anybody a rational way to answer life's questions. What are life's questions? Is there a purpose in life? Is there a God? Is there, um, is there a meaning to suffering? These are the big questions that people ask, and they couldn't be answered through rationalism or through empiricism. So Kant said, well, we have to look inside to our perceptions. And eventually this deteriorates to just raw subjectivism and emotion, and that's exactly what liberalism is. And that applies to liberal, the liberal, liberal philosophy as well. Now, everything I've said in the last three or four minutes is a result of about three or four uh, semester-length courses and about 5,000 pages worth of reading in order to really come to understand that. And I, I'm not bragging when I say that. One of the things that's really that, that I've enjoyed in the last year on the men's prayer breakfast on Saturday morning, we've been reading through uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, How Should We Then Live?, which is a tremendous overview and interpretation of how we got here and what we should do about it. And he goes back to the Roman Empire and walks us through the fall of Rome and the rise of the Middle Ages, and he talks a lot about how it, uh, the changing theology and the influence of Christianity changed art and music and sculpture and architecture and other things until you hit this uh, renewal that occurs called the Renaissance that's mostly in the south of Europe, and then there's a reformation in the north. And in a simplified way, as the Ottoman Tur Turks are coming in up to, through Turkey from the south and from the east, 
and they can't quite conquer um, Constantinople, they go around it and they conquer areas in the Balkans and they're, uh, they're threatening Europe again. And ahead of that assault that goes on for about 100 plus years, monks from the monasteries who had all of these old ancient documents and copies of scripture and uh, early Christian writings gather those things up and they flee to Europe. Well, among those things they're bringing, they have copies of Aristotle and Plato and all of the ancient Greeks, but they also have old manuscripts of the Bible. In the South, they wanted to go back to those old classical manuscripts and have a renewal of ancient Rome and Greece and that that classical culture. But in the North, they were impressed with the scriptures, and they just wanted to get back to the Bible. And that's what laid the groundwork for the Protestant Reformation. And then you go from there through the Enlightenment and all of the issues there and up to Immanuel Kant, and then into the future. And as I've been reading this, and we've been watching the videos that are on YouTube, which if you're not here and you want to watch the videos that go along with the book and read the book, uh, you can do that. But it took me back because when I was first beginning to be a serious student of Scripture was toward the end of my junior year in college. And somewhere in that time period... I was over, I was working in the summer at Campanile, and I was over at the Campanile headquarters, which used to be on Bel Air Boulevard, just inside the loop. And I ran into a uh, young lady who was a year or two younger than I am, and I had known her from camp and from church. And I saw her and I said, Cheryl, well, I haven't seen you in a while. What are you doing? And she had just finishing up her freshman year, I think it was, or sophomore year at Texas Tech. She said uh, that she was up there, and I said, well, where are you going to church? And she said, well, I'm going to Charlie Clough's church. And I said, really, how's he doing? She said, well, you can find out. And she reached in the back of her car and gave me a handful of Charlie's Basics. And at that time, I had just started to read Francis Schaeffer, and I didn't have a background in philosophy, and I didn't know all this stuff at that time. And, and I was, my head was kind of spinning over some of this stuff, which is not unusual. It takes you a while to learn this stuff. And um, so I listened to Charlie's basics, and that's what Charlie was basically describing in terms of the basics. And so that helped me get a grasp of who Schaefer was and what he was saying and understanding his, his analysis of this flow of history, which was so good. And then when I was in seminary, he wrote this book, and they went around the country uh, with a lecture series and these videos. And I was just as I watched those, I think back, I said, that was go back to the beginning of my studies in the Word and studies of theology, and that encouraged me to say, I need to be able to really understand what he's talking about. I need to know the history. I need to know the philosophy. I need to understand the apologetic strategies. I need to know Greek and Hebrew so I can handle the Scripture. And, of course, I got that from my pastor and now, 40 years later, 45 years later, I look back and I've got all these degrees and I've done all this study and I just look at this and I'm just like, 
Well, you know, it's, it's just great to get to this point, but there's so much more to learn. And when we can understand that the key issue in all of history, the ultimate causative factor in history, is not economics, it's not law, it's not some uh, impersonal fate that's driving things along, but the causative issue in history is the sovereignty of God. And what drives it in the affairs of men as often as the God has designed it is human volition as to whether they uh, follow God or not. And what you see that's never discussed by secular historians and those that are close to me know how I rant and rave about the fact that you can read all this history by great historians in the eyes of the world but they never talk about the spiritual life of anybody that they're writing about. You can read biographies on so many uh, important people in history, and they ignore it. Why do they ignore their spiritual life? Because they don't have one, and they don't have a clue how to evaluate one. So they don't realize how causative spirit, the spiritual things are in the decision-making process of leaders. And some leaders are going to end up being used by God in spite of themselves, and other leaders are going to be used by God, um, and they, they are prepared for that role like David and like others. And so you have to understand that to understand history, you have to understand that hidden hand of God that we call his providence. But you also have to understand that way people think because they're either thinking about life from a vantage point, a divine viewpoint, or from human viewpoint. And once you see these shifts that take place, like with Immanuel Kant, you see that he sets the course for the next 200 years and more because of his, his shifts. And you say, well, why did people listen to him? Why did people listen to him? Because we live in the devil's world. And that's the devil's philosophy, is to try to get us to find answers for life apart from the Scripture. And so all of these things go back to where are you with reference to God? And that's what Judges is telling us, is every time Israel shifts away from God, you see all of these other things that happen. Now, if you try to approach this from a vantage point of in, uh, enlightenment empiricism or enlightenment rationalism, you're going to get real frustrated because you can't draw a straight line of cause and effect between somebody deciding to worship a rock that's been painted like a person and somebody who worships a god who cannot be contained in a house. And yet, yet the consequences are significant. And you see this in, in the, uh, the cycles of discipline, the, the um, cycles of discipline in Leviticus 26, that if you disobey me, I'm going to bring a famine. I'm going to bring a drought. There's going to be an increase of wild animals that will attack you. There'll be all of these other things, and how can you draw a straight line of cause and effect between a spiritual decision and these physical consequences. 
but that's exactly that's exactly what happens. And so Israel makes a bad decision to go back into idolatry and to be seduced again. And what happens is God raises up a pagan leader like Yavin of Hatzor that comes out of nowhere, and he is going to attack and oppress the people and virtually en- enslave them for uh, the next several years. And so it goes back to uh, Joshua 11, what I was talking about before I got off, talking about the role of liberalism. And what happens in liberalism, because they're anti-supernatural, they say, oh, we have a mention of Yavin in Joshua 11, and there's a Yavin, king of Hazor, in Judges uh, 4, must be the same person. You really can't trust the Bible, and then off they go. But it's very clear, as we saw last time, that uh, Joshua destroyed Hazor, burned it to the ground, killed its king with the sword, killed all of the people, utterly destroyed it, and yet there's a second destruction that occurs some 150 years later, and it's very possible that someone from the line of of his relatives escaped, wasn't there, was in another town, was not present in Hatzor when it was destroyed, and because the Canaanites are just a mixture, an amalgam of all of these different people, uh, the Canaanites are the Parasites and the Girgashites and all of the other ites that are there, that they uh, reestablished that town and made an, an heir, a relative of the Yabin of Joshua 11 to be the, the king. And they reinstated that control and dominated this northern part of Galilee. So we conclude on the basis of the Bible that there were two destructions, and archaeology confirms that, that there were two destructions. And that's confirmed later in verses like 1 Samuel 12, 9, and Psalm 83, 9, that this is how the second, uh, the second destruction occurred when God sold them into the hand of Sisera, and then they were defeated. So we come to Judges 4.2, and the commander of his army is Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth Hagoyim. Now I pointed out last time at the end that Sisera is a Canaanite name, and that it is probably, I mean, it's not, uh, it's a Canaanite name. It could be uh, another name from one of the groups that were to the north of Israel, but he is more than likely a um, a Hittite, a Hurrian mercenary, much like we saw with Shamgar, and he's worked his way up to be a commander of the army's army of of Yavin, and this is not unheard of. When you look at uh, Ramesses the uh, second, he had a general whose name I can't pronounce, and that general was not an Egyptian and uh, was elevated to that position of prominence on the basis of his capabilities and on the fact that he could win and that he was loyal to Ramses. So there are numerous examples in the ancient world of a king or an emperor or a pharaoh elevating someone who isn't part of their ethnic group, wasn't an Egyptian, wasn't a Babylonian, 
but had capabilities and excelled, and so they were elevated to a position of, of prominence. And so in the first part of this statement, we have uh, emphasis on the where and the who, and then how in Judges 4.3, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Yavin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, just another point, one of the things that you'll come up with when you listen to liberals is to say, 900 chariots, oh, that's just exaggeration. However, from archaeology and discovering various uh, texts from the uh, time of Thutmose III. Now, Thutmose III may have been the pharaoh of the, of the enslavement, or he was the pharaoh that runs, that, that, whose daughter finds um, Moses in, in the Nile. So he is earlier than the Exodus. And there is a text where he has gone up into the area of, of uh, Canaan, and he has defeated the armies there, and he says that they captured 913 chariots. So that would seem to indicate that there's no exaggeration here at all, that there were 900 chariots, as the text says, that, they, um, that he had of iron. Now, again, if you go back to when we were, um, we were studying uh, in Samuel, the Philistines had the ability to uh, make iron, and so did some of the other Canaanites. So this is the beginning of Iron Age, which I always get confused with all these different um, designations, but this would mean that they're in the beginning of Iron Age one, whereas Israel is still in l- the late Bronze Age because they, are, they don't have iron. So they don't have the iron to reinforce the wheels of chariots. They don't have irons, iron for making swords or spear tips or arrowheads. And so they are at a technological disadvantage. But you and I know that if God is for you, it doesn't matter what the technological advantage is of those who are against you. And the flip side of that is if God is against you because of arrogance, it doesn't matter how sophisticated your technology or how great your armament or how large your military, uh, you're doomed. Because if God is against you, then uh, you don't have a hope. So this is the area, again, I want to make sure you get this in your head because there are a number of these different different. Um, statements in here related to to geography. So this is the area here where the battle is going to be, and they're up here in Hatsor, which here it looks like it may be a long way, but that's maybe about three miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It may not be any further than from here over to Memorial City. So it's really close. All of Israel is. You, you, if you're if you are flying faster than the speed of sound in an in an what an F thirty five, you're across Israel in about three and a half seconds. So it doesn't take long. That's why they have to have radar that can go out and why they're watching what's happening from a quite a distance because it doesn't take long in the Middle East. It's not a huge place. 
uh, for them to be quickly attacked. So this is, this is the area of Hatzor, and again, this is the area where the battle will be. So now we come to uh, Judges 4.4, uh, where we are introduced to Deborah. In Judges 4.4, 4, we read, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Devorah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now, I would bet that most of you, like me, read that a certain way, and we're probably very wrong in the way we understand that. So we have to talk about this uh, uh, just a little bit. So, uh, as I said, uh, Devorah is her name. She may very well have been named for a significant uh, woman in Israel's past. In Genesis 35.8, we're told that Devorah was the name of Rebekah's nurse who had raised her from childhood. And so she would be someone who was honored uh, in Israel. And what we know from that story in Genesis 35.8 is that when she died, she was buried below Bethel. Now, where are we talking about here? Where's Deborah? She's in Bethel, uh, between Bethel and Ramah. So, Deborah, so uh, the first Deborah in Genesis 35.8 was buried below Bethel under the oak tree. It's called a terebinth tree in the New King James. So the name of it was called Alon Bakut. So that's the first Deborah. So there's overtones of this here because we have the second Devorah, and she sits under a palm tree. See, they both were under a tree. And that's designed to cause us to make mental connections back to, to uh, Genesis 30. Uh, 35.8. So she is between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel came up to her uh, for judgment. Now, why is she sitting under the palm tree? Now, that's, that's an important question that we need to answer. And the answer to that is, um, very likely that it was a cultural thing and that as a result of her position that she would sit there. But before we get to that answer, what we have to do is address this whole issue of uh, the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Well, before we get that there, I put the slides in a different order. We need to understand what it means that she is a prophetess. Now, when we look at this, this issue always comes up, and I'm going to address some of these issues related to the role of men and the role of women as it's laid out in Scripture. But it always uh, comes up in certain discussions that, oh, here, see, Paul was wrong limiting women uh, from uh, teaching because here you have a prophetess. 
Well, first of all, there's a real difference between a, the role of a prophet and the role of a teacher. A teacher is explaining the meaning of Scripture and then its application. A prophet did not do that. A prophet was, one aspect of the role of a prophet was that a prophet was a spokesperson for God. So he's just repeating what God tells him to say. And if you look carefully at a couple of passages in Exodus, there's one passage in Exodus chapter 4 where Moses is saying, I'm, I can't really go speak for you. I have this speech impediment, and I, I'm just not comfortable being a public speaker, which was just, he was just trying to get out of his responsibility. And God said, well, um, Aaron will be your mouth. You will, I will tell you what to speak. You will tell Aaron what to speak, and he will be your mouth. Then there's a parallel to that later on, where he says that as a as you as a prophet speaks for me, Aaron will speak for you, which tells us that this idea of a prophet one is that he spoke for God. So he's not making up the message. He's not explaining the message. He's just communicating the message. So that's one aspect of being a prophet. And the other aspect of being a prophet was he was like a uh, uh, an attorney general or district attorney, a prosecuting attorney, in that he represents God, who is the author of the Mosaic Law, is the King of Israel and the God of Israel. And when Israel violates this legal contract that God has made between himself and his people saying, if you do these things and don't do the things I prohibit and you do the things that I tell you to do, uh, then I will bless you. But if you disobey me, then I'm going to bring judgment on you. So when the prophet would come, one of the words that is used to describe what they did is a Hebrew word that means to bring a lawsuit, and the picture is that God, as the one who enacted the covenant, is now bringing a lawsuit against the nation because they have violated the terms of the contract. They violated the terms of the covenant. And so God says, because you have done this, this, and this, then I'm going to do what I contracted to do, and I'm going to do uh, X, Y, and Z. And so that's another aspect of a prophet. But there is a third aspect of a prophet that most people never think about, and you all have heard me teach on this before, so you know where I'm going, and that is that the role of a prophet had something to do with music and the writing of psalms and the singing of psalms. And so the only place in Scripture other than Judges 4 and 5 that we have a narrative story followed by a uh, poetic telling of the story is in um, Exodus chapter 14 and 15. And in Exodus chapter 14, we have the story of the events at the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army is chasing the Israelites and they have their backs up against the Red Sea and God tells Moses to hold out his staff, and the sea's going to part, and then the Israelites will be able to cross on dry land. 
So God's doing several miracles besides just parting the water. He's drying out the soil underneath, but he's also keeping the Egyptians from pursuing them until they can get all two and a half or three million Jews across. Now, if they think about this, when the Red Sea is parted, if you think it's about as wide as this room, it's going to take two or three days to get two and a half or three million people across if it's not very wide. But if he separates it a mile wide, then you're going to get two or three million people across a lot quicker. And I think that's what happened. It's, it's a huge separation of the waters on the Red Sea. And afterward, when all the Israelites on the other side and the last one comes up, it's not like the movie where they just barely avoid getting their, their heels wet. But once everyone is out of the way... Then Moses raised his staff, and the waters came together. And by that time, most of the Egyptian army is out in the middle. And if it's that wide, it wouldn't take, take them long for all of the Egyptian army to be out in the middle. And then the water came together and destroyed them all. So in approximately two months, with all of the plagues, God destroyed the economy He destroyed all of their economic reserves. He destroyed all of their agriculture. He destroyed all of their military. He wiped out their leadership core for the next two or three generations. And Egypt isn't heard from again as a major power for about 300 years in Scripture, which which makes sense. And so when it was done, think about how you would feel after seeing all that, being scared to death that you're going to be crushed by the Egyptian army, and then you come out and you see God crush them. And Moses writes a psalm of deliverance, and it's called the Song of Deliverance in Exodus 15. And there's a chorus. There's a man's part and a woman's part. And in Exodus 15:20 we read, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, that is, the men singing their part. And she answered, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider has thrown into the sea. He has thrown into the sea. So this is a chorus, an echo that they would sing in response to the men singing the other part of, the, of that de- deliverance psalm. So what do we have here? We have Miriam called the prophetess. We don't have any example of Miriam speaking for God. But we do have an example of her uh, being involved in the writing and the singing of a psalm. Now we're going to skip past... Deborah and Barak, and we're going to go to 1 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. There's two or three other places, but it's basically repetitious of this. And David is organizing the choirs to sing in the temple. And so among the Levites, there are those who've tried out because you're going to use your very best voices. And he has the best of the best or the heads of these different clans who are going to provide the musicians and the choir for the temple. And we read, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service 
some of the sons of Asaph. Remember Asaph? There are several psalms that are written by Asaph or the sons of Asaph. The sons of Asaph, of Heman, and of uh, Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. Did you ever connect prophecy with singing and making music? But that's exactly the word that's used here. In the Hebrew, it is the word nava, which is the, ver- the verb form. Nevi is the noun form. And it has that same idea. It is prophesying with harps and stringed instruments and cymbals. And it could be that what it is that they are singing are these psalms that have been divinely inspired to be sung in the temple. But that is the third way in which uh, prophecy is used. In First Chronicles 25.2, the next verse, of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nethaniah, Asherela, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied according to the order of the king. And there are several other verses, but they all say approximately the same thing. So what is happening here is that there is, there is singing as a function of what someone who was a prophet did. You have Miriam the prophetess and Deborah is a prophetess. And we read in Judges 5, 1 and 2... Now remember, when we get there, I'm going to put some comparison and contrast because you learn some things about the battle in Judges 4 and you learn other things in Judges 5. Deborah and Barak, no, I put this here also because although Barak is kind of a weenie and won't go into battle unless she goes with him, uh, they're still united. So Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, When leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. So they are singing this song of praise that God has delivered them from the hand of Sisera and uh, and Yavin. And it was a bad situation, they say in verses 6 through 8, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat, in the days of Yael, now, Yael's name means wild goat or an ibex. And I didn't put a picture in here yet because we'll talk more about her next time because this week we're talking about the bee and the lightning and next week we'll talk about the bee and the ibex. So in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and the travelers walked along the byways. Now what does that tell you? If there are problems and disorder and there's criminal activity and maybe an enemy army or enemy force that is patrolling the highways, then you want to take the back roads to get wherever you're going in order to avoid the enemy. And that's what they're talking about here. And in verse 7, village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose arose a mother in Israel. Now, I think that's really important, that what we see here is a circumstance and situation when no men are coming forward. There's no men that raised up. There is just a very interesting situation here uh, with Deborah and Barak. There's nothing quite parallel to it anywhere else in the Scriptures, 
and it should raise a lot of questions for, for us. And verse 8 goes on to say, they chose new gods, then there was war in the gates. See, they, that's Israel cho- choosing new gods, went against their god. Then there was war in the gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They were disarmed. They didn't have the technology, and they're disarmed. That's why disarmament, all this talk about getting rid of the Second Amendment, having everybody register their weapons. I'm just so glad that we've had the leaders we've had in Texas for the last 20 years and in other states to do away with all of these things. A lot of people don't understand. Uh, I remember talking with a lifelong friend of mine, very, very conservative. Uh, We were... In junior high together and also in ROTC together later in, um, in college. And he said, I don't know about this, you know, constitutional carry thing. And I said, well, there's aspects of, there's a lot of people out there that I'm not so sure I'd want them having access to weapons. But once you start making that decision, whether it's you or me, I might trust myself, but I don't trust you. And it may be some somebody that's very trustworthy, but sooner or later there's going to be somebody who's not trustworthy who's going to start having some kind of criteria to decide who can and who can't. And and you're going to have real you're going to set a legal precedent there that's a problem. The other problem is that those rights that are spelled out in the Bill of Rights were understood by the founding fathers to be those part of those inalienable rights that every person had. Now, I don't have to pass a test. I don't have to take, take a course in good manners or etiquette in order to exercise free speech. Now, there's a lot of times when I wish there were a lot of people who had to pass some sort of course in civility and good manners in order to exercise free speech because they're absolutely destroying it. But once we regulate an inalienable right of any of them, if we regulate one, then that will open the door to legal redefinition of those rights and restricting them. And so even though we may think that constitutional carry uh, may not be such a good idea because I see a lot of people out there that shouldn't have one. Well, if they're criminals, they're going to have it anyway. And we have to understand that the principle here is a legal principle that is at the very root of the Bill of Rights. And that's what's threatened if we, once we start regulating, saying, well, you have to pass a test to be able to uh, have a gun. Oh, well, do I have to pass a test to have uh, an assembly? Do I have to pass some kind of a test and take some course to exercise my free speech or to meet as a church? See, if you just open the floodgates at one small point, then everything else gets, gets, gets overwhelmed. And this is what happened here they, because they started worshiping with the pagan gods and goddesses. Next thing you know, they're enslaved to a foreign power and they've lost all of their ability to defend themselves. Now, I've always asked five or six questions about this text and I was reading in a commentary today that um, I think is very good. Doesn't mean I always agree with the guy who wrote it, but a lot of times I think commentaries are good because I don't agree with anything they write, but they make me think 
really good thoughts in order to handle the passage. Now, that may seem strange to you, but that's what happens. You read what the other side says, and you go, oh, that needs to be addressed, This needs to be, that needs to be said, that kind of a thing. So I have all kinds of reasons why I consult something, but this guy is really good, and he's outstanding in the Hebrew text and pointing out a lot of minutia that reveals things about what's going on in the text. But he has a list of 12 questions, and mine are all included somewhat within his 12. So I just thought I would run by these as we get ready to deal with the the issues here. His first question is, why is she not introduced as one whom Yahweh has raised up? God raised up Othniel, God raised up Ehud. He didn't raise up Shamgar. And it doesn't say God raised up Deborah. It might infer it because of the way the story is structured because she's introduced in verses 4 through through 7, and that's about the usual place in the other narratives where it would put the statement that God raised up so-and-so. So it might be inferred, but it's not stated. Second question is, why is there no reference to her inspiration and empowerment by the Spirit of Yahweh, Ruach Yahweh? There's no mention of the Holy Spirit there. It's inferred because she's a prophetess, but it's not stated. Third, why does she need Barak to accomplish the deliverance? Why can't she go out there on her own and lead the army like any good feminist? Because, see, the feminists want to capture her and Miriam, and these are the, the women who are strong, and they were swimming upstream. No, they weren't. They were totally within God, the, God's uh, structure of the different roles of men and women. We just have to learn to figure out what, where those boundaries are and live within God's boundaries and not the way they've been distorted by any number of people, good and bad. So why does she need Barak to accomplish the deliverance? Fourth, why is the verb yasa to save, which is used for Othniel and it's used for uh, Ehud, not used here. Why is she never said to be a deliverer, a savior? I think one part of that answer is that those who, to whom that word is applied can be a type of Christ, and Christ is a male, and that, that's why it's not applied to her. Fifth, why does she say the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman instead of into my hands. Sixth question, why does the author observe that she went up with Barak in 410, but avoids placing her at the head of the troops? She doesn't seem to be a figurehead that they are following. Seventh, why does Deborah announce to Barak, quote, this day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands rather than my hands. Is that a repetition from what was there? Yeah, that's, oh, oh, it's a little different. In the hands of a woman in verse 5, in the fifth question, and um, my hand, and why does he say he'll give Sisera into your hands rather than my hands in 414? 
Why is she absent from the description of the actual battle in 4, 15 to 17? And was, why does she never meet Yavin or Sisera? Fourth, why did the poet refer the, prefer the title Mother in Israel over Savior in Israel in 5-7? That's a very significant point of description. Tenth, why does the poet avoid the root kum, which means to rise up, let alone referring to Yahweh as the causative subject when he speaks of Deborah's rise? That's that. That's an important thing because that is the usual, normal way of expression, but that's not how it's used of Deborah. Eleventh question is, what is this woman doing in what everyone acknowledges traditionally as a man's world, leading soldiers into battle? Why? What's going on there? And twelfth, perhaps most intriguing, why does the narrator portray her character so different qualitatively from most of the other deliverers. I mean, she stands out in all of the Old Testament. Why her? What is really going on here? So these are the things, questions we need to have uh, in the back of our minds. Now, the last thing we'll get to tonight is in Judges 4-5. In Judges 4-5, we look at this, this episode here, and we read, And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. So that's telling us where she did this. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So again, the geography, she's down in this area just north of Jerusalem, and an area that's going to be very significant later on in the um, uh, in in the story of Samuel and excuse me uh, yes Samuel and Saul and David. So what's going on here in this in this statement? Well, when you look at this verse and it says that she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. The verb there is your normal word for sitting, but it implies that she is serving some sort of official function. Now, one translation translates it as she held court, and that's what it looks like to us because they're coming to her for a judgment. Now, in English, this is, first of all, you look at this, and I bet you're thinking of this, the children of Israel came to her for judgment, that this is the idea of individuals coming to her because they have conflicts and they needed her to make a decision in settling the conflict. And if that's the way you were thinking, let me suggest that you're wrong. That's not what's going on here. I have thought that in the past. That's not what's going on here. And the other thing is, what is the sense of this judgment? And if we understand what is meant by the phrase children of Israel, then we will have a much better idea. This phrase, the children of Israel, is the phrase, the B'nai Israel or the B'nai HaYisrael. B'nai is the word for sons. It's translated children, but it's the sons of Israel. 
And the phrase is used 61 times in 56 verses in Judges. Now that's a, you know, that's a real good uh, source of data to mine to see if it has a technical meaning. And I'm not going to go through all 61, but I'm going to just reference four or five of them. After the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, now let me ask you this. Do you think this is coming one at a time? They're coming to the tabernacle, and after a while you have this Jew and then that Jew and another Jew and another one, and they're coming individually, and they're asking this question, who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Are we talking about a congregational assembly of the nation asking this question as, an, as a total entity of the people? Judges 2.6, And when Joshua had dismissed the people, comma, the children of Israel, appositional phrase, that indicates it's clearly a large group. It is a Congregational Assembly of Israel. Judges 3.5, Thus the children of Israel, that is the whole nation, dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Judges 3.7, So the children of Israel, this is a term that refers to a national group as a single entity. Judges 3.8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. That's used in uh, as a, another reference to the children of Israel in verse 7 and the children of Israel phrase at the end of verse 8. And then in verse 9, when the children of Israel, that's talking about them as a collective whole. In our context of Judges 4.1, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Does that mean they just kind of drifted off one at a time and did that? Or this became, he's talking about this was the characteristic of the nation, the collective whole. Well, you probably got it figured out now so that when you come to 4 or 5 and it says the children of Israel came up to her for judgment, and when we compare that to a lot of other references, what we're seeing here is a national assembly coming to Deborah for a resolution to the problem of the oppression of Yavin. And they want her to tell them what God wants them to do. And so they come to her for this judgment. They're not asking for her to solve individual legal disputes or to give some sort of specific uh, uh, answer to specific situations, but to have... Uh, her answers to what God wants them to do to solve this particular problem. And then if you look at verse 8, which is the next verse telling you what her response is. Um, let me see, I'm in verse verse 7. I skipped ahead a minute. Let me, uh, 4, 6. 4, 6, rather, that's the answer. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Obinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. So her response, she doesn't give them an answer right away, but God has given her guidance so that she calls for Barak, uh, the son of Obinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali. That's on the southeast, southwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. And says to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded? And the answer to that phrase is, Yes, he has. Go and deploy troops at Mount Tavor 
Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera. So this is his marching order. This is his uh, combat command here, order to go into combat. So we'll come back next time, and we will see that what is actually going on when they go to uh, Deborah is that they are seeking guidance from through her from God as to how they should handle the problem of the oppression. And so that is when she calls for, for Barak and gives him the message from God. So in that sense, she is also functioning as a prophet, prophetess because she is speaking for God. She is relaying what God said to him. So we'll come back and carry on with this uh, next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word that we are reminded that you are a gracious God, and despite all of the failings and all of the sins and all of the horrors that are going on in this culture, you could still deal with us in grace and rescue us from the consequences of these evildoers in our own nation who seek to take us into Marxism and tyranny. And Father, we pray that you might deliver us because of many reasons, not the least of which is the proclamation of the gospel, our defense of Israel, and our desire on the part of so many in this nation to serve you. And above all, we need to have solid pastors and teachers raised up who will proclaim the truth of your word. And we don't need to hear the song, Bring in the Clowns, because they're already in the pulpits. Father, we just pray that you would Uh, strengthen us in our faith, and that God the Holy Spirit would be the one to strengthen us in our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.